Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and you found the Christian channel that loves atheists. And today, unfortunately, we don't have an atheist live and in studio to talk to, but we do have Caleb Jackson. Caleb Jackson is a well-known to theology geeks and perhaps atheists and agnostics who watch this kind of content because he's been on Capturing Christianity, and he's been on all the other big shows talking um, often about miracles but recently talking about miracles in a debate where he and Jimmy Aiken faced off against John Loftus and another atheist who's Darren Slade. What is it? Darren Slade. Darren Slade. Yeah. So anyway, Caleb, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks, Braxton. I appreciate it. For, we're in the studio together, but having to look over Yeah, and in fact, I should just go ahead and say, now, now, yeah, I fixed it so everyone can see now, Caleb. When I look that way, I'm looking right at Caleb. When he looks this way, he's looking right at me. This is how it's set up for me and Jonathan. So if you're the first time you've seen this, we're actually in the same room. That's why that's yeah. happening. So feel free at any point to look at me or the camera. doesn't matter. And today, he drove down from Indianapolis, where he lives, uh, to hang out with me, go to church with me. We worshiped together and went out to eat together. And now here we are, and we're going to talk about Caleb's story. How did he get to the point he's at now, where he often brings up uh, the miraculous and other issues to make a case for the truth of Christianity. Uh, Caleb, so let's just jump right into this. Uh, you don't have an active YouTube channel right now. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. So typically I'm more of an author. So I, I do have a few books and I have a large book on miracles that I'm currently writing. But I do go on other people's channels and I, I I'm more, consider myself as a theological hobbyist. So uh, i right off the bat say I don't have any particular training. I don't have any degrees. I don't even have a YouTube channel. But I have lots of friends, including Braxton, who have connections. And this is, I think, how just over the years you get to learn about this and, and to really develop yourself in that way. So I, yeah, I consider my, my art form to be uh, literature and writing more so than videography. But uh, I'm always happy to take opportunity of, of video when it's there. Uh, well that. said. And so uh, what we're going to do, though, is you do have a, a microphone. And if I could get you to scoot just a little closer to that mic, that would be great for the editing. And that will make him much larger on the screen. But trust me, uh, I am much larger and he is much more in shape. But uh, in any case, let's just start from the beginning. I was asking you at lunch, Caleb, you were raised in a Christian family, you said. Uh, but at some point you kind of started to move away from some of the stuff you'd been given in Christian school as terms of doctrinal stuff. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I was raised in a pretty traditional Christian household with great loving parents. They still, still are. Um, and that way still are very, very close. Very grateful to have been raised in that environment and to have people who were really positively involved in my life. But I went to a private Christian school, um, back in Louisville, Kentucky, where I was originally from. And I kind of was raised with pretty pretty traditional views in that in that sense. So uh, while it wasn't explicitly taught in the household or my church, uh, the school did emphasize things like young earth creationism and Calvinism and, and these more uh, quote unquote fundamentalist doctrines that you might see uh, in churches like that. So that was the the Christianity that I was familiar with for probably up until junior senior year of high school. And then around that time, probably senior year of high school, going into freshman year of college, is when I had uh, t 
cliched of a word is they use the deconstruction period, right? Where I never full out left the faith, but I had the points where I was really doubting myself and doubting what I believed was true. And I saw lots of what people in the philosophical community call defeaters in terms of, oh, maybe this isn't true. Which parts of this, how do I make, I make my faith my own? And I'm not just having it be contingent on the faith of my parents. So uh, I wanted to come up with something that was more personal to me and to take on my own faith journey in that. And I should jump in, Caleb, here to say that we've said on the show a lot that this, what we now call deconstruction and with a goal toward deconversion for some people, used to be just what we would call thinking through your worldview in your early 20s. And it's a common thing that people did. Now it's got a name. And for some people, it almost has a flavor of if you're deconstructing, we would expect you're deconstructing in a certain trajectory out of some form of Christianity, but you didn't do that. You just said, I'm going to take this stuff apart and put it back together and see what holds water. And I did that too. And you, and you changed on some issues. And, um, uh, I, I think a lot, Caleb, about deconversion stories I hear at this point. And it's at this point where some of them, some atheists and agnostics, when they discovered that, uh, maybe even just maybe, or for some of them, it seems likely that this view I was raised with in Christian school or at home or in church was false then they just to make a hard line toward atheism and agnosticism. That's not what happened to you. Why were you able to stay in the faith in the midst of that? Yeah, no, that's that's a question that I, I continually think about in terms of how could it have been different in that way. But uh, I, I kind of went into college not really, not identify. I, I still identified as a Christian, but was much more cynical and was much more raising questions, sort of trying to get people to look at things like, oh, did you know the... Old Testament talks about you know genocide and um, chattel slavery and stuff like that that you'll hear from a lot of people say, and just a very cynical view where I felt like if there was a God, He didn't care about me or wasn't overly involved in my life. And part of that was because building community, I think, in high school and other ones was always hard. I did have a clique of friends and niche like that. But whenever you move different spaces in life, especially going from high school to college, you kind of lose all of those familiarities and have a new network of people you have to get used to. You have to meet people and all that stuff. So I was never overly social and had a, a strong sense of community after coming up high school. So I think part of that led to that decline and that almost nihilistic perception of, you know, my life not really mattering. And so that got me into questions about like, does God exist? Does God care about me? Or am I just going to live my life, die, and then have nothing happen? So it was very, for that reason, emotionally painful and something that I, I tortured myself with through mentally for a while and including including causing harm to myself, both spiritually and even physically. Mm. It's not something that I share a lot. But uh, yeah, it was a very dark period in my life. And while I would never say that I was like flat out suicidal in that, in that sense, I certainly did have those like fantasies about you know, what would, what would it look like if at my funeral or something like that in, in that way. So it was a very dark place to be at mentally. And I think I first sort of got out of that when I found Christian communities within the college I was going to. And so that, that helped, but I wasn't intellectually there. I kind of was like, okay, God, I don't know what the answer to this is, but I'm going to, to rely on you. In fact, one of the most prominent, um, experiences not that I use the term like it's anything overly extraordinary that I can recall was probably, I want to say this was probably sophomore year of college where I was uh, first starting to get into looking into biblical scholarship and, and I, not necessarily apologetics in that way. And so I was trying to defend the whole Bible and I was trying to say, okay, why is the Bible inspired by God? And my first inclination was, oh, prophecy, right? So I spent a lot of time looking at Isaiah and Daniel 
And if you know anything about those, there's a lot of scholarship that goes, that's very complicated and goes a lot of ways. But uh, long story short, had a lot of doubts about, you know, whether Daniel was authentic or not, and whether these were prophecies. And I just felt so overwhelmed by every argument having a counter argument that I just remember getting on my knees. And this was, I, I remember this distinctly, I was working out at the gym, like in my home gym at the time and just like could not even get through the workout because my thoughts about that were bothering me so much that I, it actually interfered with that. So I got on my knees and was just like, God, I don't know what the answer it is to any of this, but I just need you to like help me out and do that. And I just feel this enamored sense of peace come over me. And it was like that, like the second I say that, and that's, to me, what it was, it, it was is more of a, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was, it was giving the sensation that like, hey, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that it's going to be okay. I don't know why that's the case, but <laughs> I just know down the road, I'm going to be okay in, in that sense. So I don't tout that as any particularly powerful piece of evidence. I don't, that's not the reason I am a Christian. Um, you could explain that through psychological expectation. Absolutely. Does it count for something to you personally? I think in the Evidentially. moment it did. Yeah, I, I think at the time it did. I think. I'll tell you why I asked that. People who've listened to the show for a long time know that I I haven't had too many supernatural experiences of that sort, but I did have an experience when something horrific was happening in my life of intense pain, a place where I wasn't having the doubts that you're talking about. But what I did have was um, I, I did want to know where was God in the midst of this. I needed his love. I needed his peace. And I remember st- I pumped some gas in Nashville, in Green Hills, an area in Nashville. And I walked over and sat on the cement wall and put my feet in the grass. And I was praying. And I remember just feeling as though, and I'm not saying I physically experienced this, mm-hmm. um, as though God just came up from behind me and just kind of wrapped me up in his arms. Yeah. And it was a sense of peace that just came over me, like you're describing, uh, that is not like anything else I've ever experienced in any other psychological state. Yeah, no, and, that, and that's a fair point. And so, yeah, I think at the time it does, and and people could still appeal to phenomenal conservatism, which you know is the view that you should just sort of accept a default position experience you have unless you have good reason to think it's not. So, mm-hmm. I think that was the inclination I had. Now, again, I, you absolutely could explain that psychologically. I don't, I don't tout that as this like supernatural miracle. It's irrefutable, right? I, I, I wouldn't use that in in the book that I'm doing right. <laughs> as anything that's compelling to anyone outside of that. Uh, so, I, I don't yeah. consider it to be a strong piece of evidence empirically. But it did. It was an important moment, I think, in that point in my life where mm-hmm. I did want to to pursue this. And so that's when I got into, I think by accident, stumbling upon some William Lane Craig video. And I, before we went on air, I, I made the joke that William Lane Craig is sort of every young apologist's like gateway drug <laughs> yes. into apologetics, at least for most of them, maybe that or yeah. Ken Ham. Uh, <laughs> on, the other, on the other side, right? Um, or, or Braxton Hunter, maybe. Yeah, Hopefully Ken, Ken Ham was how I got into it, although it was pretty quick, Norman Geisler and then William Lane Craig. Yeah, you, you move yeah. up the echelon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so that, and I, and I think every, every apologist has had the phase where they watch like five William Craig, Lane Craig debates and they are like, okay, I'm ready to go out and use the Kalam and, and do this and like win a, art, win a debate. Like they, they practice this in their head and, and fantasize about it. Right. Yeah, and, and I want to say, I know you're trying to move on and I don't want to break oh, no, your you're flow, fine. but, yeah. uh, but another thing that should be said about those watching those kind of debates and stuff is where what I how I reacted to seeing these kind of debates at first was I would see Craig make his opening statements and it's like okay yeah that's pretty good and then I would hear the atheist whoever they were but especially if they were good they'd make their case and I might be sitting there going oh shoot man that that's pretty rough. How's he going to get out of this one? Yeah. I hope we got a good one. You know, and then Craig would always come back You're and like, respond. Oh, it's a good rebuttal. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I definitely get that for sure. Yeah. In that sense, 
but that yeah that's so that's what got me into that and i always had you know these fantasies of doing debates myself in that way and mm-hmm. i and i did i did do um i, I didn't I, there wasn't a debate team but i did have classes on debate in college which was really fun and i all the tested ones we have, I, I technically won the teacher at Marquette. Awesome. So those are always fun. But You've won every official debate. Uh, yeah, like the, the three that I had in, in college. <laughs> but that did make me want to go out and do it. So uh, I got in contact with, uh, through, I think, various means on Facebook and social media. This is actually during, uh, oh no, it was right, I, I, I'm, I'm fast forwarding a little bit here. So I was in a lot of those groups and I, I liked uh, particularly Craig's discussion on the resurrection because... I, I don't think I ever doubted the existence of God. I think it was more about Christianity specifically. Because mm-hmm. God, you know, is this some deistic kind of unfalsifiable God? Sure, like it's hard to, to disprove that. But Christianity specifically had a lot more going for it. And so Craig's case for the resurrection I thought was really interesting. And that made me want to go out and pursue it myself. And so there wasn't any one book that I thought was like, this is the resource. And so that made me want to go out and make my own version. So it's one of those where I take an argument from this one, this one, this one. So a little bit from Craig, a little bit from N.T. Wright, a little bit from Dale Allison, a little bit from uh, Gary Habermas, Mike Lacona, and stitch into this Frankenstein, which sounds pejorative when I say it like that, <laughs> into, a, into a book called Undead, and I made that in 2019. Um, in hindsight, there's a lot in that book that I don't agree with anymore, so I, I always, whenever I recommend it to people, it's always with some hesitancy, because I think my just writing has gotten a lot better since then, oh, and, yeah. and also just the arguments and, and stuff like that, and taking things more objectively. Do you and, still agree with the major point you were trying to make with each chapter? Yeah, I do. It, yeah. it was more just individual arguments and like certain things I, that I like, oh, I don't know if I'd use that argument now because of this reason, right? Mm-hmm. But the general sentiment I think did do it. But I think one of the, the strongest aspects that I want to do in apologetics, and I do attribute this to, to uh, reading Dale Allison of all people, who I have a lot of respect for. Dale Allison is a he's a, if I can use the word Christian, he's definitely a very sort of liberal cult, identifies as a Christian, but is by no means an apologist, mm-hmm. is a New Testament scholar from Princeton, highly respected in the field. And he's like, yes, I hold to Christianity because of my personal experiences, but historically I just try to look at the facts and I don't make any commitments, right? Including he doesn't even have a strong commitment to the bodily resurrection of Jesus in that in that way. But I really liked his writing style because he would take every argument like, for the empty tomb or for the appearances, and he would give the counter and post counter. So he's like, okay, here's like the 10 arguments people use. Skeptics use these 10, apologies use these 10, and then he ranks them. It's like, you know, this one I don't think is that good, and this one's not good. This is a little bit stronger. And he's like, okay, here's the strongest argument the apologists have, and here's the strongest argument the skeptics have. And when I weigh them, like on the empty tomb, for example, he's like, I think the apologist has a slight advantage, so I tentatively accept like the empty tomb is historical, although I do so with like some hesitancy. Mm-hmm. But so I wanted to take that approach in that in that writing style. So then I uh, was going to write a book about ethics and God as my second one, uh, but this was right when COVID was hitting. So I lost. Um, two grandfathers on each side of the family within a month of each other. Not actually because this is from cancer and other reasons, but that was a month before. No, that was in late um, twenty late twenty nineteen, I believe it was, and so early twenty twenty is when COVID hit, and so. I'd already been through a lot because of that and COVID hitting made things worse. And so that's when I was in the, the mindset about, you know, oh God, why? And this is is COVID and all this stuff, people dying, is it so overkill and necessary? Mm-hmm. And so the, the book about ethics changed into a book about theodicy and problem of evil. And so I wrote that for a year. And the week, uh, I think it was a week or two before that book was finished, my grandmother did end up dying of COVID in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I was in there with her. Um, I stepped out of the room when they did it, but basically she... 
uh, had to be, she had, she had a bunch of other issues like diabetes, stuff like that. So she was living at home, but she had to have an operation because of an emergency. So they took her to the hospital and she ended up getting COVID while at the hospital. Mm. And she ended up basically going to a, I don't, I don't know if it's septic shock, but a state where she was essentially unconscious and just on a ventilator and was, um, the doctor told her she was going to suffer from brain damage if she was relieved. And so that was a hard decision, but, um, she did end up dying that night. And I, I had stepped out cause I didn't want to, to be there in the room when it happened, but it wasn't it wasn't a pleasant experience. But that was that happened a week, I believe it was a week before the book came out. So I had I added a little excursus on the end of that an epilogue, like in honor of that. So the book about suffering, ironically enough, is bookended. It's it's bookended by the start of my grandfather, my grandparents dying, and then her dying. Like wow. the end of it within that time period, man. So that that's more of a personal one. But in that book, I wanted to take the approach of looking at arguments and counter arguments. So every time I'd give a theodicy like the free will defense or the soul making theodicy, I'd give, okay, here's objection number one, here's response to objection number one, here's objection number two, response to objection two, and really sort of show both sides and Mm -hmm. kind of rank like, okay, where do I think it falls overall? But I think when you're writing, it's really important to not, you want to be persuasive, but you don't want to convince someone in a way where it's dogmatic. You want to always give the thing and sort of leave them up to their own interpretations. And I think Mm -hmm. that's true with apologetics. As much as I like apologetics, I don't want to be dogmatic and be like, yes, you have to use this argument or yes, you have to think this works. I think people should follow the evidence where it leads. And if if you really feel like that leads you out of Christianity, then part of me wants to say, so be it and, and follow your heart in that way. But I, I think we would say that it, it doesn't and that it, it does right. lead to Christianity in that particular way. But I think so. And in fact, so you so where we're at in the story right now, you had looked at the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Is that where we still are exactly? Where well, we're we at? moved on to problem of evil. A, a problem was, of evil because yeah. you wrote the book on suffering. Right. And um, do you have a particular theodicy you go to? In that book, no. It's sort of, I just say, like, there's an amalgamation of them. But mm-hmm. I am now much more, having written that three years ago now, my views on, on both those subjects have changed quite a bit. But I do, I am very sympathetic to the idea of, of what John Hick called soul making, which is. Mm-hmm. The principle that suffering builds us up and makes us stronger and it's not just a pie in the sky like well you know maybe things were be better in heaven right i i think there's actually pretty good evidence that if you look at most studies people who go through hardships do report being spiritually stronger and, and saying that they felt closer to god like there are studies about people who've had miscarriages who've been victims of torture or pow's where they turn to spirituality and religion that to, to help comfort them and it's even true if you just look empirically most of the countries that the poorest in the world had the most natural disasters um, are the most religious. Right? It does seem like that that even though suffering is probably the most recognizable argument from the atheist perspective, is they'll make an argument from suffering out of the problem of suffering. But yet, the closer you get to actual suffering in this world, it seems the more theists you get. <laughs> it is, and and the people who typically are making arguments from suffering, I, I'm not again not speaking for, for everyone, but generally speaking, are people in Western, you know, either United States or Europe, who are compared to most of the world sitting very comfortably in their lives talking about the suffering, but the people who actually go through that in most cases, and again, I know that there are cases where people fall away, but statistically speaking, the majority of people who do go through horrendous suffering in war-torn areas like Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, places where there's horrible poverty, childhood illness, and all that stuff, are highly religious and in that way, and they don't see that as a conflict between their faith and God. Now, they have different conceptions of God. Maybe they don't hold all the omni properties, but the point still stands that I don't think you can draw a positive, or sorry, negative correlation between belief in God and extent of suffering. I think it's the opposite, if anything, mm-hmm. is true. Mm-hmm. 
So that is an interesting observation. It It is. It is an interesting observation, but um, that sort of did tie me then to to the work on miracles, which was sort of meant to be supplementary to the book on the resurrection um, in that way. But I think my view on miracles, based on the book I'm doing right now, has changed my view on theodicy to where I'm more confident in the the idea that suffering brings us closer to God than I was when I first wrote that book in that way. And I I I feel like, I I feel like that, and that's a great point, but I feel like when you release this book on miracles, people now, at least since you've become more well-known online, you, you, you have been more well-known during the period of time when you've been working on miracles. And it makes me think that's going to be your signature book. Yeah, I definitely think it will be. And that's, because I think it's, well, first of all, it's the most thorough. My other books were intermediate to sort of pop level. This one's going to probably be two volumes and probably close to 800, 900 pages, like between the two of them. Mm-hmm. So it's way more of an excursus. And, I, and I've been doing this now since 2021. So it's been, it'll be about three and a half years by the time the, the first volume comes out, probably be close to four years when the second one's out. So it's, it's definitely a big uh, extension of that. But no, th- the reason I wrote the Miracles book was because I had been told, I had been curious about the question for a while um, after the resurrection, because I had a very short section in the, in the last chapter of the, of the resurrection book where I talk about miracles and the conception. I listed a few cases that I had heard of, but I kind of wanted to return to the question because it was pretty, pretty supplemental. It wasn't overly um, extensive when I discussed it there. And I'd always heard about this thing about, you know, did you, hey, did you know that Muslims are having visions of Jesus that convert them? And it's like one of those things that's an open secret in the apologetics community. Like everyone, I think, has heard of that if you ask them that. But I've never seen very few people have ever taken up like writing about that. Yeah. I was like, that's so weird. I'm surprised that no one like bothers to like look into that because I did a video on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, you're one of the few, but, it, yeah. but it's not overly discussed as you think it would, because that's a pretty interesting piece of evidence, you would think. Absolutely. So the book started off being uh, like an essay on that topic. And then I got into ones about healing, and then that kind of just expanded. And so what started out as like a 60-page essay turned into, you know, 400-something pages, or just, a, well, so I guess collectively close to 800-something pages. But um, And if you want to know uh, kind of a taste of what, he's, of what that's like, what Caleb's writing about, check out the video we did, uh, I guess, a few months ago on mm-hmm. this channel, because he talks about two of them, and one of them, uh, well, he talks about three, three several, actually, because you talk about... Yeah. Uh, the miraculous stuff that was happening at uh, what's the name of the place? Lords, Lords, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then you talked about yeah, the, the there was a resurrection. He covers a resurrection that happens. And I, we were talking about this earlier today with some other people, but I thought this was hilarious. He debated Matt Dillahunty. We both debated Matt Dillahunty, and there was a moment in the debate with Matt where he and I'm not going to recall this exactly, but he says something about well, how come there's no resurrections or something like that? And Caleb says, I actually have one that, that I think is highly evidenced. So he talks about these things, and Matt's just kind of like, oh, okay. Now he did cover it later and talk part. about it, but it was a complete yeah. shutdown because right. nobody expects you to have a resurrection ready to go. Yeah. Well, no, usually I'll, I, I feel like I'm Gary Habermas when I say it like this, but typically I'll be like, okay, what's one you want? Like, just give me a category and I can probably find something. What about, what about, what about, what if somebody said um, regrowing a limb? That's one that comes up a lot. Yeah. I actually have a whole chapter called Does God Heal Amputees? And I've done videos with my friend Than from Exploring Reality on that. And I actually just got into, uh, you know, Jimmy Aiken, yeah. who, I, who I was in the debate with recently. He has a podcast about um, supernatural, paranormal stuff, aliens, stuff like that. And I had given him a chapter in the book where I discuss a case like that. Now, this is from a few hundred years ago. 
And he thought it was so interesting where he, I believe at this moment, unless something changes, he's planning on doing an episode on that this coming up. So I would recommend whenever that comes out, looking into it. But yes, yeah, if anybody a- doesn't know Jimmy Aiken's weird channel where he talks about weird yeah. stuff, it, he, he, um, it, it's like you, what used to be popular, the coast to coast AM back, uh, before your time, Caleb, there was a show on AM radio that was popular. But if you liked that, you'll like this. Go ahead. Yeah, no, definitely. But, uh, yeah, so there is a, there are a few cases where people grow back organs, which is essentially analogous to an amputee, uh, to an amputee growing a limb back because they have, you know, the only organ that grows back is, the liver, at least fully, the stomach can sort of grow parts of itself back. But I do have one of an intestine growing back. I do have one of a uh, rib and lung that was removed. That came oh yeah, back. that doesn't grow back. No, no, not naturally. No, neither, no, none of those grow back. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then yeah, there is one, at least one well-documented one from a few hundred years ago about an amputee growing a leg back. Now people will say, well, a few hundred years ago, but take in mind that when you're dealing with an amputee, you're not dealing with something that's easily like, oh, there's a misdiagnosis or something where it's going to be up to to you know clerical error or medical so you're saying if the criticism would be i can't trust that because how do i know it really happened because it was so long ago yeah or it could have been a misdiagnosis from so long ago you're like okay maybe if it was like COVID or something yeah it depends on what it is yeah just yeah it it would and then and in the case i'm talking about in particular if you just want a preview of it like the early it was about a certain farmer or who was working a 20 year old peasant who was working as a farmer who broke his leg i believe it was the um Oh, the uh, tibia of that tibular fracture, where he had to go to a hospital. This was in Spain, so he goes to the region of Zaragoza, and uh, and and gets uh, his leg. He gets admitted to the hospital. We have records from when he's admitted to the hospital. He gets his leg amputated. They have to take a iron and sear the stump to stop the bleeding. And you know the only anesthesia they had back then was wine. So very unpleasant <laughs> experience you can imagine. So he becomes a beggar for two and a half years. Gets a license to beg because back then you had to have a license to beg to show that you were really sick and and poor and not just someone who was trying to get pull up one over on people. And he does this for two and a half years. He was very well known in the community. He was always outside of the church. He would also help light the lamps. That was his like part-time job while he begged for offerings and stuff like that. And he would rub the holy oil of the of the lamps of the church on his stump, like crying out like basically for the Virgin Mary, which the um place in Zaragoza where this happened had a Marian apparition associated with it from years before. There's there was a church built to honor her. But he would cry out to her to heal him, right? So this went on for two and a half years. Um, was seen by plenty of passersby, and one day he goes back to Kalanda, which is where he's originally from, a couple miles out from Zaragoza. For the first time, he meets his family. They, you know, have a reunion. They're hor- they're sad to see he's an amputee, but they care for him in the house and stuff like that. And when they go back to his room uh, at the middle of the night, he's sleeping. They see that he has two legs back, and so they're like, "Oh my gosh, your legs back!" And that way, and, and so this was quickly declared a miracle and uh the earliest document we have from this was written i believe three days after the event was a notoriety of like all the the 10 witnesses that were there where they interviewed them he goes back to zaragoza the archbishop of zaragoza calls for and this was during the spanish inquisition mind you so this was when they were like cracking down on like anyone claiming to have revelations or faking miracles they had a, a trial on this behalf uh, and so this, he was healed in March. The trial was in June. So this is about two months later. And we have the minutes from that of the every witness. There was about 24 witnesses total. They interviewed name. A lot of them were neighbors of him. They interviewed the doctors who cut the leg off, the staff who buried the leg in a courtyard. And they asked him, like, is this the man that was you treated? Um, look at his leg now. Is this, a, is this the same, uh, the leg? And what was interesting is it was the same leg that was originally cut off. So they had originally buried the leg in a box and put it in the, in the hospital courtyard, which was common 
common back then because the idea no. was that you're going to be resurrected uh, with your body, so they didn't want to just dispose Don't want to lose it. Did they dig up the they box? Did, they dig up the box, and it was empty. No, and shut up. No, it sounds like a shut magic up. trick, right? <laughs> and, the, and the leg that was on him had the same scars, birthmarks that this other one was, right? And it had oh a big, but it had gosh. a big circular scar mark from where the, the cutting had been, from where the oh saw had gone gosh. through. But when his leg had originally turned, it was, it was like uh, he couldn't really walk on it. It was blue and a little bit shorter and curtailed. Uh, and we'll get to that in a second. But uh, so anyway, this becomes a big thing. They have this, and they officially declare it a miracle, and it gets a lot of press. Now, the typically people will push back and be like, "Well, you know, the natural reaction would probably be to say, well, maybe he didn't have his leg cut off at all, right? He was faking it, and he woke up, and his parents saw him when he had his leg out. He's like, oh, guys, it's, it's a miracle, and people were oh, so yeah. stupid and, and bought it, right? But you have the testimony of the doctors. You have the fact that he had a license. And, and we go into all of the uh, – in the book, I go into all of the, the counter-objections, and it gets kind of technical with that. But one thing I thought was interesting because people were saying, well, look, the fact that his leg was constrained shows that he was basically – sort of like flamingo style, binding it up behind it and yeah. was doing that's why it was like atrophied. But there was a, actually a study published in 2000 by, I think it was an Italian doctor, a Spanish surgeon, where it showed that if you actually look at uh, limb re replantations, which is a modern practice, like from the 1950s, where they, you know, where they sew up limbs that have been severed from people, um, it actually looks like that. It's blue, it's contorted, the, it's shorter because the, the muscle and bone there. And then over time it grows out, which happened in his case. Over about three months it went back to normal. Oh, so it's okay. very, it, it shows verisimilitude with how people actually get reattached limbs onto them. So I think oh that's really gosh. interesting, right? And so if this was like a, a, a faked account, I don't know why you'd make it to where it's like, oh, well, his leg was like not functional. It took a little bit. Like it's not like the yeah. instantaneous kind of one. That well, was someone spell. there when they buried the leg? Yeah, they had the person who testified to burying the leg on the Yeah, on the so trial. there you go. Well, you would say that, but, <laughs> but but what's funny is that uh, David Hume, who is you know, very well known for his essay against miracles, right? Mm -hmm. He actually mentions this case, and this doesn't get talked about a lot. He and he's like, "That one's a miracle." No, well, no, he mentions <laughs> it in his in his essay, and it's funny because he says, "Like, oh, look, here's a case in Spain." Because this, this happened, this would have happened probably 50 years or so, maybe a little more than that part. So this was like, Hume, it was contemporary to Hume. It was a little bit before him, but mm -hmm. within, a, within a century. And he says, like, look, we have signed witnesses to this. We have testimonies. We have so many people who saw this modern day, modern technology. And we know this didn't happen. So how, so the fact that you believe stories in the Bible, like further to this, and Hume even goes so far as to say that, you know, it wasn't necessary for, because he mentioned a particular cardinal who like met uh, the guy afterwards, and, and the cardinal's like, yeah, I met him, and he had two legs, and they all told me that he used to only have one. And Hume's like, it wasn't necessary for this cardinal to go investigate this. No, he was he was right to just dismiss this offhand because we know that any testimony that backs a miracle is more likely to be false than for the miracle to occur. And so we don't even need to look into it. It's not even worth oh, our time. David, David. So yeah, and then that so that was sort of his view. But it, I think it's interesting how you do have a really interesting case like that. And it doesn't get that much attention. And as far as I know, I think I'm the the most prominent author who's written on that in the English language. There are some who've written Italian and Spanish on it, but there really hasn't been much English language discussion wow. of that. So that's awesome. I would like to think that I've written the most. It was worth having one. you come down just for that just story. For that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks everyone. Good night. But um, <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's one idea. But. Uh, and, and, of course, that is a Catholic context of a miracle, right? So mm -hmm. it, it definitely is not something that I— Well, that's where it makes I me want to go off and start asking you some questions, but yeah. I think you're still— Well, no, I was wrapping it up. I, I want to go down— Yeah, so, asking, so here's a question. So you said a moment ago something that ever since the earliest days of my interest in apologetics, I took on from uh, Anthony Flew, who famously uh, became at least a deist or something mm -hmm. toward the end of his life after being an atheist for many years. Um, and that is follow the evidence wherever it leads— you 
I take I think you've done that in a unique way that not many apologists have in the following regard. Uh, Caleb has presented on a number of occasions of occasions in defense of Marian apparitions or um, an appearance of Mary. Now these almost always, or if not always, happen in a Catholic context, or maybe in uh, maybe an Eastern Orthodox, maybe yeah. you get something Coptic like that, context, yeah. or a Coptic context. Where we have the famous one down there, yeah. and we used to have some Coptic students at this uh, school that, that we talked to them about some of that. But the thing is, Caleb is not a Catholic, or and Orthodox. so I'm not, he, I'm neither. I'm not Orthodox either. I'm right, or Orthodox, or Coptic. Right? right? He's he 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 is following the evidence wherever it leads, and where that has led him to is. I think these Marian apparitions are evidential. I think there's good reason to believe that these are, let's just say, supernatural events, for lack of better terminology. Um, but he's not Catholic because he doesn't think that the evidence is ultimately strong enough for him to affirm the dogmas of the Catholic Church. So how does that work? Are you just at this moment saying, I don't really know what to make out of that, just following the evidence? My instinctive answer is just to be like, I don't know. My, my more thought thought out answer um, to the chagrin of most Catholic friends of mine who are just like, oh my gosh, why don't you, this is like so easy. You know, you have the ball teed up and you, you're not swinging it, right? Um, it's a bit more nuanced than that. Now, I will say that I am very sympathetic to, having this position has made me very sympathetic to people who are skeptics and will say, you know, some of these are really interesting cases, but I just, we just don't know. And as much as I don't want to say it like I just don't think I can get to that branch to accept in supernatural theism because I have so many other issues with Christianity or with it's, just, it's so unintuitive to me that I can't even like bring myself to think that that's true and so I, I remain agnostic as to what the explanation is but I still don't think it's this and you even have the famous example of um, the person that Craig said I believe Pinchus Lapide right famous New Testament scholar mm -hmm. who was Jewish who said, you know what, historically, I think the evidence is Jesus probably did rise from the dead as the Messiah, but I don't think he was like God. I don't think he was, it was that. He was like and a Messiah to the Gentiles. Yeah, and he has this very weirdly mm -hmm. nuanced view. And to anyone else, it's like, come on, Pinchus, like, are, are you just like, you know, stretching this out to a way it's really ad hoc? But I also get it, because I could totally see Catholic or Orthodox saying like, okay, so the Virgin Mary appears and you have all this stuff, and yet you don't affirm the Marian dogmas, right? And and like this is something that's, it has bothered me because I I look at something like when Pope Pius uh, the was it the ninth, tenth maybe in 1950 declared through um, ex cathedra through dogma that you know Mary was assumed in the heaven and if you deny this, I believe this is close to an exact quote like may the wrath of uh, Saint Peter and Saint Paul be upon you on Judgment Day or like you will receive that right. So like that, it's a lot of pressure. So there's a little bit of a Pascalian thing to it too, in terms of like, should I just accept it because of that risk? And if not, so the idea that this could potentially be true, me not accepting it, all, all of that does bother me. And so I, I don't um, hold back from that. So I, I do think about that and I have a couple of, my first inclination is to say, well, maybe, you know, God heals people and does miracles just out of the kindness because he's a good God and wants to strengthen people's faith, but doesn't want any particular theological message associated with it, right? You could say that. So if someone prays to a saint um, and they're healed, then maybe God doesn't care what denomination they are. He just wants to help them out. I think on its face, that's plausible. In so fact, uh, on, wait a minute. On that, okay, a strength of that was that would maybe been a, that would maybe speak across the board to the experiences of both Protestants and Catholics being yeah. healed. Um, 
uh, and not always through Catholic saints or, you know, with the veneration of Catholic saints. Uh, with the with the Marian things, would you say something like, uh, well, here's a these people are trying to reach out to God in a particular way, and so God's going to kind of meet them where they are by giving them what they're asking for, type thing. Yeah, I, I, that's well, that's how I was going to finish that. I, I think that part of me wants to say that that's true, although I wonder, like, is God sort of instigating them to have like this? I don't want to say delusion, but if, if it weren't true, like, is he just mm-hmm. promoting that? Is he only going to, he knows that by doing this, he's going to encourage people to have Catholic theologically beliefs. false beliefs. If that, if you take, if, think that they are yeah. theologically false. Now you could say maybe God just doesn't care. That this is mere Christianity, that God is just open to that. But I do think there's a distinction one could make with Protestant and Catholic ones where the Catholic ones are more associated with like this actual figure. And it's not just people who get better when they're sick, but even the people who are praying to saints and getting healed, these are, the Catholic Church does take these and canonize the saints out of that, and God obviously knows that they're going to do that. So He knows by healing this person when they pray the saint that this person is going to be canonized and all this stuff as a saint. So is God promoting that, or at least hmm. deliberately doing the case where He knows that's how it's going to be interpreted, right? Or another example: people go to Lourdes, France, which you mentioned. Uh, Lourdes is a very um, well, I say very famous. A lot of people haven't heard of it, but within this realm very well-known site for healing where in 1858 a uh, young French girl 14 years old named um, Bernadette Subaru claimed to a woman kept appearing to her I believe over the course of I want to say it was 18 times maybe 28 something like that um, and uh, on the second to last and she didn't know who this woman was and no one else could see her it was she was like oh there's a lady there I'm like I don't see anything and she would she would spend hours there like it wasn't just a one it was like she was dedicated she would get there pray it was a whole thing but um, the second to last one, the lady allegedly spoke to her where she said, um, Je suis l'immaculée conception, or I am the immaculate conception. Apologize for the butchering of the French there. Uh, but, uh, and so oh, this. That was impressive. This, thank you. This, this, so this uh, led them to believe this was the Virgin Mary, right? Saying, I'm the I am immaculate conception. And so Our Lady of Lourdes shows her this stream when she digs into it. There's this water, and so people start taking this water and they start claiming they're healed. The first case was a woman who had a paralyzed hand that she had a sewing needle, I believe, stuck in there that had gotten lost in it for years and her hand was like horribly contorted and stuff. When she put her hand in the water, she was able to move it for the first time in years. So um, uh, doctors began looking at this and they actually now over the years have had a medical bureau that investigates these and looks at it. Now, plenty of people go there and aren't healed or think they're healed when they're not. So this isn't like everyone who touches it is healed. But there still are claimed healings today? Yes, even today. Um, and people like to say, oh, they knock off. They um, they were more common in the early 20th century than they are now. So it is true that they've gotten less common. But I think a lot of that is because some people will say, you know, the skeptics will say, well, because medicine's gotten better, there's less misdiagnoses and so forth, and so that's why there's less healings. Other people would say, well, it's because medicine's gotten better, and in places like Europe where healthcare is universal, essentially, virtually everyone has access to medicine. Less of an impulse to go to Lourdes. It is less of an impulse to go to Lourdes, and it's also one of the criteria that they have to have, and I can go into that if you want, is that it has to be healing that's spontaneous. So it can't be healing that had any contribution to medicine or treatment. It, like, like you'd have to, they had to be able to say that the medicine treatment had did not contribute to the healing, right? Mm. But since almost everyone now has access to medicine treatment, it's very hard to make that determination to say that it wasn't contributing to that. But back in the early days when medicine wasn't as widely available, it was a lot harder. So people will look at that. But um, so people say, well, you know, the ones in the early times were just misdiagnoses, and that might be true for some of them, like uh, neurological cases where people paralyzed. You can't have that because those you need MRIs and stuff to diagnose. So sometimes that is the case, but there are cases where 
you have something where it's like an amputee healing, where not not that an arm goes back, but you have cases where it's such a obviously physical symptom that you can't, it doesn't require modern technology. Mm -hmm. So like one of the most common diseases healed at Leward is tuberculosis, or what was tuberculosis, because that was very common in the early 1900s, um, where people were coughing up blood. And tuberculosis, once it spreads to the body, often leads to these huge sores, right? And so I, on your channel, I believe there's one case we went over of a woman who had tuberculosis for three or four years, was coughing up blood, and her face was eaten away. She barely had a nose. The yeah. Gone, all that stuff. She wore a veil because horribly ugly. And when she came out of the water, her face was completely healed, like that kind of So, like, again, not something you're going to be easily mistaken about. Right. There was yeah. another uh, woman uh, case, uh, Marie Borel, who had had... Um, She'd had appendicitis, she had a surgery, and the surgery was butchered, and so it basically the incision they left opened back up, and they had to restitch it, and it opened up again. Mm. And so she got all these fistula around her abdomen, and I think it was four on her abdomen, two on her back, and these were like so deep that they pierced her small intestine. Oh my god! And without getting too gross, like pus and like fecal matter were like coming out of that, like draining out of it, and she oh had to have gosh. her stuff drained like several times a day. Um, and she was sick. She was, had a catheter. She was sick for years, couldn't get out of bed. When she goes to Lourdes and gets in the water, she feels better, catheter is removed, and the next day all of her wounds are dried up. And wow. she's completely healed. And she stayed healed for the rest of her life. <clears throat> so you have these people who have really progressive, very visually obvious diseases that go away instantly or almost instantly. What's your credence that Marian apparitions specifically are real? Yeah. So And that tying, it's Mary. So tying that to, to it... Um, to, to the Marian apparition stuff, I would be inclined to say that they probably are, I think they are supernatural. I don't think they're demonic. I dislike the demonic term because I think it's very ad hoc and it also opens up Pandora's box to say that anything I don't like is demonic, <laughs> right? right? You know, you could say yeah. Jesus raised from the dead by demons if you were a Jew, if you right, wanted to. Right. So I don't, I don't like doing that route. But I my, my go-to answer at the moment, and this could change, is that mere Christianity being true, God wants to... Uh, convert people to Christianity through miracles and accommodate where people are at. And so God takes the cultural backgrounds of these places and sort of uses that within it because it would be more efficient to do it in that way than to reintroduce an entirely new concept. So like one of the reasons Pentecostalism has been so successful in like Africa and other places, partially because it's very charismatic, but it's also because it blends very well with the like tribal local religions there because there's all they're also very charismatic in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that God uses... You even see this in Acts where Paul's like, oh, here's your statue of your unknown God, and they start the conversations based off of, yeah. off of the, the milieu. Well, this is why that. I was going to ask you is um, because I remember um, several years ago, uh, who, who was the guy that was the, uh, maybe you don't know, the, the guy who was the friend of David Wood. He was a Muslim convert to Christianity. Nabil Qureshi. Nabil Qureshi, that's right. Yeah, so I was listening to him on Unbelievable. This is when he was still living. Yeah. And uh, he was talking, uh, I mean, I was listening to it when he was still living, and he was talking about um, uh, Muslim, the appearances that you were talking about earlier, uh, G Jesus' appearances to Muslims. And he was asked why that seems to be the mode so often that we see in that context. And he said, well, because if uh, these particular Muslims expect to get anything other than the Quran, what they expect to get is some sort of some sort of a vision or something like that. Right. And so God right. appears to them in the way that makes the most sense. And he said, you know, another example of this, and I've always thought about this. It's one of those hypothetical, you know, we're just we're just speculating. But he said, you know, um, with speaking in tongues, for example, 
He said, I'm inclined, and uh, he said, I'm inclined to believe that actually what we're talking about here is a known language. It's not, um, it's not, it's like xenolalia, it's a glossolalia, yeah, that yeah. thing. Right. And it is a known language, and you're not speaking an ecstatic utterance or something. And uh, he said, but, in the Bible, but he said, but I know so many people that I genuinely believe are telling me the truth, and they have these experiences where they're doing ecstatic utterances. And he said, I just wonder if it's not that God is looking down and thinking, okay, they're trying to connect with me. I'm going to honor that in some way or another. Now, that's always been weak for me, but it came to mind when you were talking about this. Yeah, it is, and it's something that you see with, like, one of the things you notice about Marian apparitions, I think counts against them a little bit, is that they are inconsistent in terms of her description. So if she's appearing in Lourdes, she looks like a European white woman about the age of 14. When she appeared allegedly in Guadalupe, Mexico to the Aztecs, much more Latina-skinned woman mm. with like Aztec kind of imagery. If she appears in Africa, she's African-American, she's black. If she's in Japan or China, it looks more Asian. So mm -hmm. she fits that. And I've heard, I've heard some Catholic people just say, well, she just does that to adapt to the culture. Now, of course, if you're a skeptic, your response is going to be, well, yes, people have hallucinations or things based off their expectation. It would be more impressive if they were all consistent across right. the culture, it, right? Yeah. But I think there is something to be said about adapting to that. And I and I and when I look at something like Lourdes, if you look at the time frame, this was right after the French Revolution in the late 1790s, where Catholicism was very like much disliked, and this was the height of rationalism when they were basically suppressing the church. But Catholicism was the traditional view in France and even like Spain and stuff like that. So like if, if God wanted to start a revival there and he did it through, I don't know, Pentecostalism or Baptists, it probably would not have been as effective there. But it is actually impressive that even today, France is still a very secular country, generally speaking. But Lourdes is still a huge place of pilgrimage that people go to in an otherwise pretty secular country. And, mm -hmm. I, and I think that's really interesting. And, I, and actually with the major Marian apparitions, that's the case. If you look at Fatima, which I don't even necessarily think is like miraculous in that way, but Fatima happened in Portugal in the early 20th century when Portugal was, I think, close to communist or was communist, where they were suppressing religion. Magigorie, which happened in Yugoslavia, which was communist at the time, was very oppressing to that. Uh, and you have it in Zaytun, which is, I think, the, I think the most interesting one, the Coptic one in Egypt, when the Coptic Christians were getting persecuted and were very much disliked by the Muslim population there. This is right after the Israel uh, uh, Six-Day War with Israel and Egypt as well, so tensions were already very high. So it is interesting that the, when you look at other religions, there are big places of pilgrimage or places that are friendly, generally speaking, friendly to that. You know, India is going to have Hindus, Muslims going to be in the Middle East, but the places that are the most friendly or I'm sorry the places that have the most like pilgrimage sites with those Marian apparitions or with the exception of maybe I think Mexico uh, are places that were generally hostile and of course even Mexico was not originally Catholic they were Aztec they had Aztec religions and were converted through the conquistadors but even the conquistadors have a tradition with Our Lady of Guadalupe where they say Mary appeared to the, uh, the Aztecs there and converted that that image alone I believe converted close to nine million people over the course of several years like it's actually the biggest as far as I know, the biggest conversion, mass conversion. That's what history. the conquistadors say happened. Well, that's what the I think the records at the time had like how many people we have converting to Catholicism that were Aztecs wow. within that period because allegedly the Virgin Mary appeared to this and left. You know, there's it's almost like they have a version where it's like the Shah of Turin. They have the Tilma, the Guadalupe image. It looks like a painting on this, and the story is that there was a man named Juan Diego who. The Virgin Mary appeared to him, and he opened up. He wanted to sign. Oh, yeah, you can bring it up. Uh, yeah. Guadalu if you look up Our Lady of Gua Gua Guadalupe Tilma, it'll be up there. Guadalupe, there we go. Uh, T-I-L-M-A, Tilma, that. Yeah, there we go. 
So it, it's this image, right, that looks like it. So they have this framed, you can see, in like their big church. So this is allegedly an image that appeared on inside of someone's robe as a sign when the Virgin Mary appeared. Now, I don't personally think that that's miraculous. I think you could, the, the, the data You're I've saying this appeared, they're, they're saying. They are saying, now the, the historical data for this, the source is like pretty old. So it's, I don't think that the evidence is good for this, but it's just the tradition, right? But my point is whether or not this is actually true, this story uh, did end up converting millions of Aztecs to Catholicism, right? Because because they would go visit this and they really believed that this happened. And so, this appeared where? This allegedly appeared, um, I believe when she appeared to Juan Diego, he wanted a sign and she like created this on the inside of his robe with like roses and stuff like that. Oh, so, this is Juan Diego's robe, huh? I believe it was like part of it, yes. Okay. So that that's a copy but oh, um, you a, get the yeah that's the, that's not the authentic that's if you that. wanted it at home <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah right exactly so it's interesting so it's kind of their like version of the shroud where it's like an image on it but actually i i think what would be cool for your viewers to see and this was on the um debate i did with jimmy aiken if you want to see it was uh zaitun so the one up uh, that one that's the probably the most well-known one that one as far as i know is actually authentic so the story behind this one is that in the late 60s I, I should reverse back so in the early 1920s there was a businessman, uh, Muslim, I believe, named Ibrahim, who was going to build uh, a hotel in this spot. And now Zaitun is well known uh, in their in the Coptic tradition. Again, I don't think this is historically true, but you know in Matthew where it says they went to Egypt to flee Herod? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Coptics have a tradition that Mary stopped by that what's modern-day Zaitun in that area to rest. Like that's the place the Virgin Mary stopped by, so they, they have a mm. high regard for it. So Ibrahim goes to build a hotel on the spot, and he has a dream where the Virgin Mary says, no, don't do this, build a church instead and give the money to the poor. So he does this, and the church is dedicated to the Virgin Mary. So that's in the 20s. In the 60s, in 1967, um, fast forward, a Muslim man uh, looks up and sees what he thinks is a nun who's going to jump from this church, a woman in white. And so a bunch of people get round as a crowd and look up at it, and like, oh, don't jump, all this stuff. And they look, and she's kind of shimmering, and they look a little ethereal. And she then vanishes and be like, oh, maybe that was the Virgin Mary. Now, if that happened one time, you could say some weird light people just mistook for the Virgin Mary, right? But the weird thing is this happened doesn't this actually hundreds of times over the course of three years, always in this same church, either in the courtyard or on the roof. At first, the police thought this was street lights that were being reflected. And they turned off, they, they knocked those down and, and they, the light was still there. They searched for projecting device, could not find any. They, okay, one, that's good to know. At one point, they turned off all the power in the city and it was still there. Oh and they gosh. could not find what this was. And people claimed to have been healed by this. They actually had uh, doctors from the University of Cairo investigate some of these. And some of these were medically inexplicable. But you have this image of what people believe to be Mary coming here on top of this church dedicated to the Virgin Mary. And literally close to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people saw this over the course of three years, including the president of Egypt at the time. And we also have articles written by anthropologists who were even atheists at the time who saw this, and it didn't convert them. They said, yeah, I saw a light there, and if I winced, I, I could see how it sort of looked humanoid. But I, but no but no, no one has really been able to come up with a good uh, source of where the light comes from. The closest you've seen is someone uh, trying to say that they're earthquake lights. Um, which sometimes happen when earthquakes happen. But the article that was published on Earthquake that, lights. Yeah, so the theory is that the friction of the of the uh, geothermal um, friction from the, um, oh, what, I'm getting, the plate, the platelets mm -hmm. of the earth can cause, like, light because of the way that the friction's going, which has never actually been demonstrated, by the way. But um, the theory is that sometimes you do see weird lights when earthquakes happen. But these typically only last for a few minutes. They, they're not 
formulated in the way that you see with Zytun. And the study that did this looked at earthquakes that were 400 kilometers around there. So we're saying an earthquake, I don't, what's the difference between Evansville and Indianapolis? You know, it's, know. it's, it's further than that. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, if you're saying like anywhere in Indiana, there was an earthquake, you could have a light. So the theory is that earthquakes happening all across within Egypt happen to have lights that happen in this exact same spot <laughs> right. for this time. And that's why it's getting criticized. Like you've never seen earthquake lights repeat in the same area right. that way. And of course, with the prediction of the Virgin Mary appeared to this guy in a dream and said she was going to appear and all this stuff like combined with that, I think just makes that so. So hold on, let, let me ask this. So what did nobody like get a ladder and go up there? I think it was well. So it's actually really hard to get up there because the way the dome is shaped, it's not yeah. like you can just you're not going to really get a person like up there very okay. easily. It's very slippery. But I think no one attempted it because out of respect, once people started saying this was Mary, they were like genuinely concerned that I I don't know that that would be disrespectful but they did try finding any kind of projection devices from within inside the church okay. from outside okay, of it. Okay, that's good. So so yeah, so there's been no there still has been no like generally agreed upon thing of what this was mm -hmm. in this way, but this also isn't the only incident. There's other churches also dedicated to the Virgin Mary also in Egypt that have had weird lights on top of them. Same thing, it's been investigated. Sometimes lights are inside of the church, sometimes they're outside. Um you can find some of those online too. If you look up uh, Water, Our, Our Lady of Warrock, W-A-R-R-A-Q. Um, this is I, this one is in 2009, so it's in color. Now it's kind of blurry. This one's not as well attested as Zytun because it only happened on one night. But you can see those like weird lights that appear on top of this church, and that yeah. way, people like photographed and stuff like that. So. Okay, okay. So now this is interesting. So am I to take? Each of these lights as being part of the experience or just the humanoid-looking one? And that's a good question. And some people with Zytun would see multiple lights. Sometimes they'd see other ones. In fact, if you look with Zytun, there were also these... Um, if you want to go back to the Zytun ones, there. Uh, look up uh, Z the Zytun doves. Yeah, we'll go back to okay. all of that. And you see multiple lights with that. So there was the main light of the Virgin Mary. And... Uh, yep. One more. Uh, dang it. Oh, it was just right here. Yeah. Sorry. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you don't have to delete all of that. Just, yeah, add dubs to that, and you'll see them there. All right. So uh, scroll down. Like okay. So you can see on top of her one of those, right, where it looks like a bird. In the like this, is this what we're talking about? That's one of them, okay. yeah. If you Okay. So go to that one down there. The cro No, no. Left. Left. That one. So the... Yes. That one is what's supposed to be dubs floating the shape of a cross. This is also around Zytune. So you see these like other lights as you see, right? Yeah. yeah. And you can see different like images of that. But, Is this um, like a close up on one? No, aspect? that's a different that's a different miracle with someone okay. having a Eucharist appear from their mouth allegedly. You know all these miracles, don't you? Yeah, I told you it's a big book. <laughs> I know that was fun to go through. That was. It was a nice little field trip. It was, but but it's one of those things where, you know, it, that has made me realize more too where people want to pull, you know, arguments from silence to say like you know, if, and I'm not, I don't have an opinion on whether this happened or not, but in Matthew 27, it says all the dead roam through Jerusalem and no one else mentions this except for Matthew. And like everyone would have talked about it. It's like, okay, we can have a case where literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people claim that the Virgin Mary appeared with photographs and newspapers in the modern day with most people being literate and most Western people have never heard of this. <laughs> right, and that's yet, right. And yet we want to say that people back then in the culture was mostly oral and illiterate, that this would have just been talked about everywhere we'd have a bunch of sources for it. And I, mm -hmm. and I just don't find that, given how common this stuff is. Even I, a lot of Catholics wouldn't be aware of some of these. Like they yeah. may have heard of Fatima. Like you'll, right. you'll, you'll, or they may be able to say, I think I've heard something about that. Yeah, but they wouldn't like know it. You think this would be in like every history book. <laughs> they wouldn't say, no, I know that spire. That's from a different Marian <laughs> apparition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but it, it, but it's interesting. And I, and I, and I, that's one of my favorite cases because it's just, there's so much out there and 
I and I like I say I don't really know what to do with it, but part of me loves it because it's like such a well documented miracle case that I just I've never seen any atheist be able to properly address, at least not in full. Mm-hmm. But part of me also has that cognitive dissonance in terms of, well, this isn't great for my Protestantism, but you know, I'm more unco- I'd be more uncomfortable as an atheist, so at least I'm sort of in the right realm. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like that's one of the things, as I say, that I like about your story and your position is that you're saying, look, I'm following the facts. This is where I am. I know it looks weird, but that's where I am. Right. And and I like that. Um, and I'm sure that the Catholics like that <laughs> right. to, to some degree. But it's still I like it, too. So what else? Could, where we could we go from here on? Well, I think the um, the miracles thing is interesting with uh, going back to the problem of evil for a second, too, mm-hmm. because I was going to tie this into it earlier. But. I think that this perspective has really made me reevaluate theodicy in a different light because when people talk about how there's greater goods to things and stuff like that, a lot of times it's just sort of wishful thinking in terms of, well, I can't see how this could be good, but maybe it will turn to. But um, for a while, like the amount of sufferings would bother me. Like I can understand people going through problems to help them, but people who go through horrendous suffering with horrible diseases, holocausts, genocides, some of that seems like it's a gratuitous. Couldn't God build this up in a way that wasn't as excessive, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But looking at these cases, I have yet to find any case, and some of these people have gone through, have been sick for decades, gone through horrible, I mean, you know, even some of the Lord's cases, you just feel so bad hearing about these people. And whenever they're they healed, or they will say believe that they're healed for the sake of argument, never once have I seen someone who was still bitter saying, well, it's great I was healed, but I wish God would have done it 10 years earlier. It's always, they're so happy about it, and it's, it's part of their testimony, and they're like, it was worth it, and I'm so grateful that I, that I have this story now. And mm-hmm. so if miracles are sort of snapshots of heaven, I think that's how it will be. And so I think empirically, if we can see people who go through decades-long chronic illness, suffering, including people who've gone through torture and stuff like that, feel like that religious experience them strength makes it worth it and that these are the victims themselves and they don't feel like it was gratuitous how can we possibly say well that's too much for god that can't that's too much god can't use that for good because you know again like and we're saying this to people who haven't gone through what they've gone through and if they're grateful for it can we say from a third party perspective that no what they went through was too much and was not worth it mm-hmm. i don't think we can so miracles to me have made it seem like more apparent than ever that people can go through horrible things and yet have their faith strengthened in the end and not everyone in this life does get that but i do think that that will happen in the afterlife of miracles are just the little peaks behind the um the curtain so to speak for certain people well that's beautiful but it also makes me wonder about something else which is okay you you have you have looked at this stuff and there's a lot of ooey gooey sentimental type stuff in this we hear your stories and we we feel emotional we feel the warm fuzzies and then we think about your theological positions in general, and we find another one that is criticized often mm-hmm. for being arrived at mm-hmm. just because you're such a lovey-dovey, fuzzy guy. And that position is one where you differ from a number of most of your William Lane Craig-style apologists out there, right. and that is on the issue of hell. For those that don't know, there are at least three positions that are somewhat commonly, well, I wouldn't even say universalism is commonly held, but right. but uh, that evangelicals can hold on a position uh, on the position of hell and that you'll see crop up. And one of those is the eternal conscious torment view, which is sounds awful. Um, it is the view that most uh, Americans, particularly middle America people grew up with over the past 40, 50, 60 years. In fact, it's the position of the church largely throughout church history. 
But in the early church, there were two other positions as well. There was the position called conditional immortality that you may know as annihilationism, and that is the view that you will one day be annihilated and you won't be conscious anyway experiencing suffering forevermore, that it will come to an end as far as that goes. And then there's another position, and that position is called universalism. Some people take an evangelical universalist perspective, and there have been books by that title. And it might shock you to hear that someone who other than on that kind of an issue, agrees with you on most stuff. And so we find ourselves saying, hold on, in Mark chapter 9, Caleb, it talks about it'd be better for you to cut off your arm than, uh, and, than, and, than to go into life with, with one arm than to go into death with two arms. It'd be better to, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, cut off your leg, gouge out your eye, the worm doesn't die. This sounds pretty awful, and we learn in the book of Revelation that this is, there's going to be a lake of fire and uh, all that. How in the world can someone hold to something like universalism in light of all of that? Since you know you're obviously wrong, how can you claim you're right? <laughs> yeah, no, that, thank you for the loaded question. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that it, is, it is a good consideration, and I, and I uh, agree that a very literalistic reading of Scripture would probably get you to something that's not universal. If you, like, if you were just to take the verses about this is suffering— I agree. It would it just hand to a random person. They would say, yeah, this looks like they suffer forever, right? Um, but there's plenty of places in the Bible where you can do that. And I think even places where we wouldn't agree that you should just take the most tra- straightforward reading. You have to look at cultural context and all this stuff. So I, I think we should be using the perpetuity of Scripture um, consistently in this regard. So I would say that, yes, if you look at the hell passages by themselves, many of them, some of them might be conditional leaning, some of them might be eternal conscious torment leaning, you could get that way, but you don't see this lovey-dovey kind of um, reconciliation in those pastors themselves. But when you do look at Scripture as a whole, and as a complete idea, I do think you see within the character of God, a God who is unconditionally loving that way, who, as Second uh, Peter says, you know, desires that none shall perish, but all should be saved in that way. And, and you do have verses about, in Colossians 1.20 where all of creation is reconciled before God, not, not just you know, def- not just death being defeated, but reconciliation. And it's really hard for me to imagine a world where reconciliation happens where the majority of the population is still hating God in the separate realm that's sort of just isolated in that way. Mm-hmm. And in that way. And so when you when you have that and you have pastors about how he's a savior to all people, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And you know these with all your Calvinist Arminian debates in terms of what all can mean and stuff like that. But in Philippians where we learn that every knee will bow and confess that Christ is Lord. I think many people take that to be almost like out of fear, like we're pleased. They're God, being forced. Doing it. Yeah, it, 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 bow it, before it, me, you heretic. It, it, and it's almost in a way that's I don't want to say authoritarian, but it kind of like mm-hmm. almost like how everyone in North Korea applauds for Kim Jong Un when he's coming down, where it's like yeah. a, purely out of fear, right? In that way, and I and I and it says to the glory of God in that way, and I and I, and I wonder what gives God more glory? Is it seeing people grovel to Him? because they're scared of that. There's people seeing who are genuinely repentant and genuinely have been won over by him, right? And when it, said, when it says that, and, and it seems to me like if you look at passages where people say, oh, Lord, you would not do all these things in your name, and Christ says, I never knew you, clearly God does not like people who just snivel up to him just because they can. He wants people who are genuinely repentant. So when I see people bring glory to God by having every knee bow down to Christ, I do think that that implies rather strongly that this is the end-all, be-all for all people that God will ultimately achieve. And, you know, it's funny that as much as Calvinists and Universalists are pretty much polar opposites of each other, the one thing I think they have in common is that they do preserve the sovereignty in that way where God is not compromising. God gets what he wants in the end. 
It's just that under Calvinism, what God wants is for many people morally very questionable. <laughs> Whereas yeah. for, for universalists, God gets what he wants in the end. Um, and for, I think, the Arminian, they would typically say, well, God has to compromise. God really, I mean, Ultimately, God wants people to freely love him, but darn people's free will gets in the way of that. And so God, with a bleeding heart, has to watch his children basically uh, kill themselves, and, and he's essentially helpless to, to save them from themselves. And to me, when Scripture says that uh, nothing can separate from the love of God, neither death nor hell nor, nor life, nor all, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I don't. I don't think that our own wills are are an exception to that. Essentially, now I don't think that God gives us a divine lobotomy. I don't think He overrides our freedom to that. As many people want to say, He's not kicking you, grabbing, grabbing and screaming into heaven. Um, but it's a it's a change. It's rehabilitation. So universalists would say, yes, there absolutely is a hell. People go there who have not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's not just everyone goes to heaven automatically, no matter what religion you are. But hell is remedial. Hell is not uh, prison. It's not an execution chamber. It is a uh, basically drug rehab. It's it's an AA meeting essentially, but on much much more severe levels. Um, and no, and no, I think Universalist has like a, a conception of what this will look like, just as no one really has an idea of what hell will look like. It's all very speculative. But even though it's not monolithic, there are a number like for a lot of people that think, how in the world could you ever defend? Kind of like I presented a moment ago. Yeah. Uh, the response would be well. Because a lot of those things that you think count against my position, I'm not a universalist. Caleb leans that way, but uh, but but I would think that what you would say is, um, while a lot of those things you might think count against the position, they actually are affirmed by our position. For example, there are many universalists who affirm a hell, and that that hell may happen for a long time, yep. and that it may be uh, very unpleasant, and they have very different ways of describing what they think that unpleasant experience will be like, right? right? So when you point at, look here, it says fire, and it says be better to cut off your arm, and all, they're going, yeah, it's, it's not, right. Yeah, as, <laughs> as my friend Andrew Hironich, who's a, one of the bigger proponents of these, who just had a book came out that I'd recommend, says hell is not Hawaii, right? I would, if I had to guess what hell would be, I would imagine it'd be something akin to like a Christmas carol where you're basically going through and seeing the stage of your life and realizing like how bad how much you wasted every person in need who you didn't help and the stress of that is just so tormenting i also like the idea that tim keller and tim keller wasn't a universalist said um of hell where hell is getting everything that you thought you wanted in life and realizing how miserable you are right and but we, this th these ideas that you're raising would go along with the notion that this is remedial yes. and that's why i think it yes. would be something like the christmas carol insofar as in the Christmas Carol, you're learning. Right, exactly. And yeah. Scrooge changes in the end because of it. But mm -hmm. Scrooge sees his own death and, and sees how his actions have led to the deaths of others, and it's horrifying in terms of how, how negative that impact is. So I think that there's so much psychological torment in that, right? Like, hell might be Hitler having to watch the death of every person he ever killed and feeling and every scream and every ounce of pain that they've went through in that way to realize how, how these people were not just statistics, they're, they're human beings who each have their own lives and stories. And so hell under that concept may very well look like that. Now, people will say, well, what, how do you deal with the hell passages about eternal destruction, eternal fire? And there's a couple different approaches. A lot of universalists want to take the approach where they say that the word ion or ionios, which is mm -hmm. eternal, um, can be translated to mean for an age. And that is true. Uh, the, you do see it, I believe it's in... Um, 
I want to say it's in Colossians where Paul says these have been kept secret for Ionia, for an age, mm-hmm. but have now been revealed to us. And obviously in that context, he doesn't mean eternally. So it can mean that in the Greek, but it is context dependent. And you do have verses. Well, yeah, in the book of Jude, it's Ionios fire, I think, that, uh, yes. that comes down on Sodom and Gomorrah. So right. it's like there you're tempted to think that the way Ionios is being used is like, God fire or heavenly fire, yeah. God stuff. Right, yeah. it is. And it's also like the idea that you have, you don't want to take that too far because you could say, what about John, like who will have uh, eternal life? Is it saying mm-hmm. a, a life for an age? Is it saying, you know, like do mm-hmm. we do we make that mean salvation is also not eternal if we want to right. play that game? So especially when you have the parallelisms of like just as you have the sheep and the goats to this, so also, just as you have eternal destruction, so also you have eternal life. And so it's mm-hmm. this direct parallel. So, I don't really like Well, that hold on there. The annihilationist obviously would say eternal yeah. destruction, uh, you're destroyed, mm-hmm. and that state will be the case right. eternally, you know, everlasting. Yeah. And you know, it's funny that you say that. I think that that's actually, I think that that would be an interpretation that I would take, but the, the difference is that when we're talking about the person who's destroyed, I would say, well, who does Paul say, when we talk about baptism and the old being put off and the mm-hmm. old self being destroyed, I think you could say, yes, the wicked part of us that is destroyed is destroyed forever in eternal fire. We agree on that. Mm-hmm. But out of that fire, do we have a Phoenix that rises from the ashes or is that where it ends? Right. And so if right. you read scripture in, in context, you might say, well, maybe it does extend to that. So maybe we agree that the old wicked parts of us are destroyed in eternal fire and eternal meaning the consequences are eternal, not that it's forever mm-hmm. conscious in mm-hmm. that way. So but you know, what's weird to me about it. I'm not the first point this out. There's been a lot of people say this, but when it comes to this term, and some of the other aspects of thinking through hell, traditionalists, by which I mean those who affirm eternal conscious torment, and universalists have some similarities in the ways they see this mm-hmm. that annihilationist conditional immortality don't have. Right. You know. Yeah, about the con- the the extensive that, and I think that also you have like the verses that talk, and I, I brought this in my debate with Chris Date. If, by the way, I, I did debate Chris Date on this, who's a conditionalist, so if you want to watch that, mm-hmm. it's from a few years ago. Video quality was worse, and I was heavier, but, you know, putting those <laughs> things aside, it was, it was I think, a decent debate, and Chris... Did you lose a bunch stuff. of weight? I did. I did lose a bunch of weight. I probably lost... 30, 35 pounds oh, yeah? in the last couple of years. Yeah, no, it's well, been, praise the Lord. been great. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, shedding weight like we're shedding the old self. As we, and, and that, <laughs> I and that, put it all on. Uh, but but <laughs> well, I, I wasn't going to say anything. No, I, I lost, <laughs> when, I, when I first came to Evansville, I lost 50 pounds. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I kept it off for a number of years. Mm-hmm. It crept back on, though. Children can do that, oh, too. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's great. But well, anyway, so power. that, so you're, now, here's something I was going to ask you about, though, or I was going to say. I've heard Ronick, Ronich, Haronich, Haronich, yeah, uh, make this connection between uh, that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. And here we have in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so the notion is there is to say that, yeah, to back up your point that if every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, mm-hmm. uh, you can't even do that Jesus Christ is Lord, those words. Right. You can't even do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, I presented this to Jonathan Pritchett, uh, my, one of my, uh, my co-hosts here, and he said, yeah, I don't buy that. He's like, what you're telling me without the Holy Spirit, I can't string together the syllables that make the sounds Jesus is Lord. And so I couldn't do that just because he is okay with the, no, you're forced to, you know, you're going to, you're going to bow. 
But uh, but I do think on the face of it, this passage and that one go well together. And what does it say in Romans about if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? And, and believe it, you rose from the dead, you'll you be will saved. be saved. Well, they're confessing with their mouths, and clearly if they're saying before, they probably believe he's risen from the dead. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, now, now and, I, and I get that because you do have the part where they're like, oh, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? And he says, I never knew you. So mm-hmm. it, certainly people can be false prophets and the Bible clearly talks about. But I do think it does come down to the sincerity and the glory of God. And in the Philippians passage that does say that every knee shall bow, mm-hmm. which I think is a reference to, I think it's an Old Testament, I think he's citing somewhere in the Old Testament when he says that, maybe it's in Isaiah where he does that. Um, it does say to God's glory. So if you want to say that God is being glorified by people sniveling up to him out of fear, you could say that, but I don't find that to be like a very plausible interpretation from the God who really wants people to do this who sincerely like heartbroken that they're not in that kind of way now you could say maybe his justice is bringing that about glory but it, it is up to that i will say though with the the eternal path the eternal um verses that talk about eternal destruction one interpretation you could take i think is the one that i said where the the old self is killed and that's basically the conditionalist reading but we're just saying that the, there's a distinction between the dichotomy of our new selves and old selves like mm-hmm. when we're baptized by fire, which she is talking about baptism by fire. Paul talks about it in First Corinthians three, but I think another really, and this is not like a, I was going to say an Orthodox Christian Universalist view, but that may be somewhat <laughs> of a paradox, but uh, like not a view that's very common among Christian Universalists was something that Alvin Planning of all people actually brought up, and I don't think he was a strict Universalist, but he sort of, from what I understand, like toyed with it. He's like, yeah, you know, maybe it's true, mm-hmm. and Planning us said. And again, like there's no scriptural, I think, explicit one that affirms this, but it's consistent to say, what if hell is sort of like a revolving door to where there's always people going in there, they're remediated, more people go in there, and it's this eternal cycle. And so hell is always occupied. And so eternal hell in that sense is actually occupied. There always is weeping ashes. There's always this. But uh, would you not need more people to go into hell from earth? Like, does that result in some eternal? Uh, Eternal regeneration, almost. Well, you could say, I I guess you could say, and you know, I actually am sympathetic to that view because, like, why would I don't I don't see why God would stop with this X many people when He comes back. Like, He could always save one more person, right? Unless unless you have this really strict view where, like, no, this is the absolute most feasible world, and God could not save like a single more person. Uh That wouldn't make it better. Uh And so I I think, yeah, I don't see why God wouldn't continue this forever and ever and Hmm. ever is a sign of sort of eternal victory. That is really interesting. Now, let me ask you this pressing question. If you found out that one of the other two views on the nature of hell was true, mm-hmm. uh, would you still be a Christian? I would still be a Christian, although I would probably take a um, skeptical... And I, when I say skeptical, I mean... Agnostic? I, I, I would be like a divine skepticism. I would say that if you were to ask me about how do I reconcile this with like the overall story of theodicy and so forth, I would just say, I don't know God's ways are higher than mine. And maybe that is the correct answer, but if you're going to press me for an ending to this story, I would say that universalism to me makes the most sense. Because when I look at the problem of evil and theodicy, I say, okay, why does God why does God create the world? Well, he creates the world because he's a good God. He wants to create persons that are very valuable, that he wants to have a relationship with, that he wants to give free will. And um, this is the meaning of it. And God wants to have them learn and to grow spiritually and morally and develop virtues so that they can be with him. And this is a very good thing. That, that's the general purpose of creation in that way. But then you get the question of, okay, well, why do some people fail this test? Why does, some people, why does God create some who he knows, quote unquote, will be damned, right, in this way? And that question always bothered me. And one solution that you could say that I don't think is very satisfying is to say that, 
Well, God creates the unsaved because they are essentially necessary for the saved to be saved. So John might not become a Christian unless his atheist friend Paul exists and they interact, right. and that's what leads him to it through some kind of Molinism or whatever. And you could and never so, have, and, and, and to add to this, someone might think, well, yeah, but maybe he could just don't cre- only create the... But but then if you only created them, like this is the point you're making, you change the board, you change the set. Yeah. And there will always be people now who, perhaps, who are now unregenerate, right? Yeah, people who might be regenerate might be unregenerate in different right. circumstances, right? Yeah. So if the circumstances... But I think that, to me, that's really not satisfing because then you're basically saying that the, eighth, the, the non-believers are sort of a means to an end, that they're mm. chess pieces on the board, that the pawns that have to be taken by the queen to to win. And so God is like, well, you know what, Paul, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm going to have to make you because, and this is basically what William William Craig's position is too, that he's like, well, why should they have veto power for what God wants? Like, Mm. you know, they shouldn't be able to override that just because it's unfortunate for them, right? Because it's their freedom. And so they're so responsible. But I don't know. I, I do, I do sympathize with that idea that I feel like God would only create the ones who would be saved. And, and I do have to wonder that if God's going to gamble, I don't mean like an open theist, like he doesn't know how it's going to come out through, but if God's looking at the options to say, I could either not, cre- if the only options I have are, it, if we're assuming that I cannot create a feasible world that where everyone is saved and has free will or whatever, that my only options are create a world where I can have all these good things, but it's going to cost a huge amount of collateral people go through suffering that ultimately leads them away from me. Either they get destroyed or eternally separated from me which breaks my heart, which I don't want. But in exchange, I get to have a relationship with a lot of good people that I love or just not create anything at all and just have God be there in his perfection with the Trinity. I think it might be better for God to not create at that point, mm. if, that, if that's the calculus. If those are his only options mm-hmm. that he has to weigh. So it's really Yeah, this is a thought that comes up a lot. I think we all have to face that. Why did he make anything yeah. if anyone is going to go to hell? Um, right. Now, uh, on the conditionalist perspective, we could have Chris Tate here, and he might say, well, you know, uh, and I don't want to speak for him, but he might say from the conditionalist perspective, something like, look, these people still had many uh, positive hedonic moments. They experienced many pleasurable, good things in life. They, uh, But he wouldn't argue this because actually he wants to point out that that judgment on annihilationism is horrific. So Yeah, so, <laughs> but like, is that, but, you know, would we use that argument with anything else? I mean, I think that we, we talked about over lunch like concepts like antinatalism, which are mm-hmm. you know, these weird philosoph- philosophical ideas of is it okay to have children or not mm-hmm. in certain circumstances. And I think that kind of applies to here too. Like can you say, well, this baby that was born with this horrible degenerative disease that left it in pain for that, if that baby even got a few seconds of a smile and happiness, that was all worth it versus it not being. And, and I'm not, and I don't want to draw a line here in terms of saying like it's better for people, for kids. No, it's to, tough to do that. But it, it is a tough question for sure. And and I and I not to, to disparage Chris Day, but like I do think that that's coming from a place of, of I don't want to say a privilege because I know that he, him, and everyone has been through horrible things in their lives, that horrible struggles. But there are people who live in horrible chronic illness and mm-hmm. do all this stuff who are separate from God. You could even look at some of the Jews who went through the Holocaust who went through unimaginable horrors and assuming some of them didn't left their faith and lost that in the Holocaust, would that be worth it to make them go through all that suffering for it to have no end game just for a short period of pleasure? Mm. I don't think anyone, I don't think any parent would justify their child being tortured just because their child had some good memories too. You know, you don't, when you, when you commit a crime, you don't say, well, here's all the good things I did officers. So That's true. You know, the bad ones That's you have true. to say, well, no, you'd, I don't care if, if you opened up all these orphanages. If you murdered that one orphan, you just to pay that your good acts don't outweigh the bad. Yeah. So I, I just don't think you can like 
try to outweigh that unless the evil is directly going to correspond to the good is is in that way and so you're willing to take that view but i I feel that just commits you to a view of like freedom and humanity where you're going to say that the the pursuit of this is such a great good that any amount of evil is going to be overcome and i think that to me that i can only say that if the evil is instrumental in bringing about the good but if there's so many people who fail that test who are can who are just destroyed or separate from god forever who also went through horrendous suffering it does legitimately make that suffering i think horribly um impactful and and i'm sorry not horribly impactful the, the suffering they have in hell is horribly impactful but it does make it pointless towards their salvation story because mm-hmm. ultimately it fails and i have the same problem with atheism too in terms of problem of evil like i don't mean like an intellectual problem but i do think that atheism is so detestable to mo- so many people in terms of attractiveness because it's saying and i don't, I don't mean like the whole like william lane craig like assertive life without god because you could say that you know maybe life has temporary value or it doesn't have to be ultimate value for it to be to be worthwhile but if you're going to say that to say well put aside eternality life can still have meaning you're gonna have to say the suffering in life is also significant like you wouldn't say oh this person has gone through this horrible suffering but they'll be dead in 10 years and won't remember any of it so who cares like obviously no that suffering is bad and it's bad that they're suffering it and we're not mm-hmm. just gonna be uh, we're not just going to be empath- uh, sorry, uh, psychopathic towards it or indifferent because, well, when they're dead, they're not going to care, so why should I care now? Like, obviously, no, in this moment, it's horrible that they're going through that, and we don't want that. Yeah. So I, I just don't see how that really gets you out of it. And to me, yeah. it's an entailment of God's plan and this whole story. So, yeah, I, I would just ask anyone who who doesn't hold to that view, which I, and I respect that, uh, those positions. Like, what is what is the salvation sort of you? What is, what is the reason, what is God's sort of plan that he has worked out here in terms of how he came to, it's better for me to do this than not, mm-hmm. in the story of salvation. And, and universalism to me is sort of the, uh, the only real cohesive story I see out of that. Well, listen, I really appreciate you sharing your take on all these things. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you thought, man, I, I really do want his audience to hear this. Uh, I don't know. I don't think your audience knows how nice your studio is. Here, so maybe that. But, uh, I said, is this what you thought it would look like? He said, it's bigger than I thought. Yeah, this room is bigger than you think it is. I thought he did this in his basement his whole time. But no, he's like, a whole setup here is actually really cool. So I like that. No, I, I do appreciate being on here. Uh, I didn't have anything else. I know we've, we've been t- we spent like the whole past hours on this and, and over lunch talking. So it's been great. Yeah. But I, I didn't have anything off the top of my head, if you wanted to wrap it Well, up. I wanted to encourage people to check out Caleb's stuff. Maybe you don't disagree with him on one of the theological issues that we talked about uh, in the midst of this, but you're interested in the miraculous, and you're interested in um, getting, uh, as best you can, a non-biased take. When you've got a guy who's not Catholic but is saying Marian apparitions are real or seem real, then um, I think where we're at is you got, you've got a more biased guy than a, than a lot of people you might suspect. So I encourage you to check out that book when it comes out, but you don't have to wait for the book. You can go check out Caleb. I, I, if you just go Google or not Google, go on YouTube and type Caleb Jackson and like miracles. I think you'll come up with his appearances on capturing Christianity, which is a huge channel, our channel and some other channels and just check it out because one of the things he was telling me on the way over here is he, he said, you know, there's so many great miracle stuff, uh, stories that I can 
trade them out. And each time I go on somebody's show, I can talk about a different miracle. So there's actually benefit to going to hear everything Caleb Jackson <laughs> has ever said because you can get more miracles that way. But he's also become a good friend and one of the young guys coming out, uh, coming up in the the apologetics world online or the theology geek world. And I'm so glad to see that. And he's been a lot to my wi- life, my wife, my life. I'm having trouble today, man. He's been a lot to my life. And I think he'll mean a lot to yours if you'll give him a chance. Caleb, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, Brad. And we'll see the rest of you next time on Trinity Radio.